The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Rise Radio with counselor and prevention expert Randy Havison. Recovery in various forms is something that many of us face every day. Most of us need some sort of intervention to start the process of rebuilding and reconnecting our lives. This program serves to empower you to find new ways of solving old problems. Now, here is your host, Randy Havison. And welcome back to another edition of Rise Radio. I am your host, Randy Havison, and it is a thrill for me to be here with you today. You know, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about a lot of different topics and a lot of ways to to get support for yourself and and for the friends and family members that you have. And today is going to be no exception. Uh, you know, I, I put out an email to a lot of my friends and colleagues and said, hey, if you want to be on the show, I'd love to have you. Let me know what you want to talk about. And Andy wrote back and said, hey, I'd love to be a guest on your show. So today we have with us uh, Dr. Andy Finch. And I've known Andy for, oh, geez, a lot of years. What, probably 15 years, something like that. I don't know. We'll figure that one out, too. But uh, we, we know each other through the Association of Recovery Schools, and we're going to be talking about uh, teen recovery and recovery high schools and, and some tips for parents on what you can do to lower the risk of your kid falling into the traps of, of alcohol and other drug abuse and addiction. So we're going to talk about a lot of things like that. So without further ado, let me get to Andy and tell you a little bit about him. Uh, Dr. Andy Finch is an associate professor of the practice of human and organ organizational development at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Finch co-founded the Association of Recovery Schools in 2002. And among his numerous published works on recovery and education are Starting a Recovery School, published in 2005, and Approaches to Substance Abuse and Addiction in Educational Communities, a Guide to Practices that Support Recovery in Adolescents and Young Adults, published in 2010, on which he was a co-editor. For nine years, Dr. French worked for a community high school in Nashville, one of the early schools for teens recovering from alcohol and other drug addictions, and a school he helped design and open in 1997. Dr. Finch also helped found Vanderbilt University's Collegiate Recovery Program in 2007 and currently serves on its advisory committee. Dr. Finch also... Uh, no, Dr. Finch, most recent projects include a recovery school outcome study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and a recovery high school history to be pub- published by Oxford University Press. Andy, good for you. That's awesome. And Andy, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, dude, that's, you've been doing a lot of writing, and, and one of the things I want to do, and maybe we'll do this now just to kind of get it in there, where can people get a hold of these books and find more information about what it is you're doing and the information that you're putting together? Yeah, I think uh, a variety of places. Uh, you can certainly go to the uh, Association of Recovery Schools website, mm. and you can link uh, to some of those, and that's recoveryschools.org. 
uh, recoveryschoolsplural.org. Uh, Starting a Recovery School was published by Hazelden Publishing, so you can go to that site uh, to get an access to that book. I I do think that so many of the works that I've done and others have done, unfortunately, at this point, are fairly academic. uh, And and Mm. oftentimes that means uh, having to go through, say, a library uh, or other academic resource to, to get them. So we're working on making things more accessible uh, but a lot of it is really in the academic realm right now. Wow, yeah, and it needs to kind of go out to the other places as well because, you know, this is something that I think is so needed all around the country and I think actually all around the world. And one of the cool things about this show is that we have a lot of listeners in the U.K., in Australia, uh, all over Europe, uh, South America. So, you know, I'm hoping that this movement can carry internationally as well. So do you know if there are any recovery high schools in other countries? Uh, not to my knowledge. I, I do think there have been a couple of programs uh, starting to develop in Canada. Uh, mm. I will say one of the more recent projects I've worked on is a special edition of the Journal of Groups in Addiction and Recovery focused on international issues of recovery uh, for young people. Um, and, and we've got uh, articles from different countries addressing uh, recovery supports uh, internationally. But in, in actually preparing that journal, I, I've realized that you know, treatment programs and recovery support programs for young people um, aren't as widespread as we would hope, and especially mm-hmm. as far as schools are involved. The idea that uh, recovery support would be something integrated into the school system as a, as a specialized school, whether a high school or a collegiate program, uh, is not something that has spread globally at this point. So hopefully mm. programs like this can, can bring some attention to that and, and we can start changing that. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, that would be the ultimate is if we could have regular public high schools uh, have programs just like they do for other, you know, learning disabilities or other disabilities, looking at recovery that way and putting together programming for these students that would help them right there on the campus. That would be ideal. Yeah, and uh, part of it is building awareness, um, as as you said. Uh, I, I find when I have conversations with people, Unless this is something that has touched them personally, uh, say they've known a, a, a family member or had a, a family member that has benefited from a school or a collegiate recovery program, a lot of people just don't even know that they exist. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. uh, here in the United States, uh, a, a real lack of awareness. It's getting better, um, but it's still, we have a long way to go, an awful long oh, way sure. to go. And it's not just people in the general population, it's policymakers, it's people that mm-hmm. could actually promote this, people in the media. Um, it's, it's even people in the treatment community who you would think would definitely know about recovery high schools and collegiate recovery programs. Many, many, many of them don't have any awareness, or if they do, it's very rudimentary, and they don't understand really what, what these programs are. That's true. And, you know, I, I work in the higher ed realm, and the the notion of doing recovery programming is still so new on so many campuses. Well, you know, when we were working together at ARS, I think when we started back in 2000, when did I meet you? For 2004 or 5, something like that? 
It was soon after the start of the the association that the National Association of Recovery Schools began in 2002. Um, oh. and so you know we're about you know 14, 15 years old now. Yeah, but I found back then maybe a dozen campuses had recovery support, and I would go to national conferences and say, "Hey, let's support students in recovery." And they're like, "What? That's not a valid issue. We don't need to do that." But now they're starting to come around. And you know, we're watching on the college front more and more campuses putting these together, but still in the high schools, do you think a lot of that is due to stigma still? Or you know, there's still that notion out there that, hey, if you're doing drugs and you're addicted, just get over it and stop using, that it's, they aren't aware of the disease part of this or stigma? What do you think the reason is why this isn't getting out there more in the mainstream? I think there's a variety of reasons. I certainly think uh, stigma is, is still pretty apparent in society around uh, addiction, also around uh, any type of mental health issue. I, I think we've come a long way. Uh, I think the way we talk about it, the way we understand it, I even see you know people in leadership embracing this issue. Uh, substance use disorders was a topic of uh, presidential debates. Uh, it was something that came up mm-hmm. this year. Uh, more than I've ever heard it. Um, so I do think we're starting to cut through it. But when it really does get down to that, that human-to-human level, I still think there is a level of stigma uh, for a family to acknowledge that their child has a substance use disorder and might need to go to a school that's identified with that. Um, that can feel very stigmatizing uh, for some families. And I think that's one of the one of the big things that we've, we've tried to cut through over the years. But I do think it goes beyond stigma, Randy. I, I, I think, you know, for high schools, it, it's, it's not easy to just get a high school up and going. There's a lot of pieces to that. Yeah. And there's a lot of elements Absolutely. that go into it. And they tend to be very small schools. And so they tend to have an average of about 30 students in a school. So even the economies of scale can make it costly to get a program like that going uh, in a district. So you have to be very creative financially uh, to make that work. Um, at a mm-hmm. college setting, it's not quite as complicated to get a program going, uh, but you still have to bring awareness to that concept and have a college make that a priority. And, and so spreading the word at the college level um, is, is one of the first steps. I think that's why we've seen much more growth in collegiate recovery programs than recovery high schools in recent years. Uh, there's, there's quite a few more collegiate recovery programs that have started, and I think a lot of that's just that it's not quite as complicated uh, to do that as it is to run a complete high school. Yeah, that's true, because you have to find the separate building and insurance and staff, and yeah, it is a separate entity, and that's what makes it difficult. You know, I live here in Orange County, California, and I've been working with a woman here or kind of advising and and kind of consulting with, and she's been trying to get a recovery high school off the ground here for years, probably five years now, six years. And she's having a really difficult time putting all the pieces together. And it's hard watching her struggle with this because it's so needed here in Orange County. But we can't seem to get everything working together in order to make that happen. And just now we're putting together a new committee and making some good strides forward. But yeah, it's difficult doing the high school uh, recovery thing. And, And it's almost like we need a major donor in each of these cities to come in and say, here, 
start your school and get your staff together. And unfortunately, those those folks are few and far between. They are, and and I think you know beyond just the practical challenges, I I, I still think we wrestle with philosophical challenges as well. Uh, I think in in the education system, and this is especially true in the uh, K twelve education system. Not everybody agrees that things like substance use and mental health uh, are the goals of a school system, that these are things that a school mm-hmm. system should be servicing, uh, preventing maybe, um, uh, perhaps identifying and then referring on, but actually servicing with staff and special programs and specialized schools. The education system, many, many people don't believe that's part of the education system's mission, uh, that it's somehow tangential. And as long as that's a belief, then anybody uh, that's trying to get a school going is having to push back against the education system. And if you Hmm. can't even get that going, you're going to have major barriers uh, to getting a school off the ground. Uh, And and furthermore, a a number of people still question whether... uh, adolescents uh, and young people can truly develop a problem that would require that type of intervention. Um, (laughs) I'd like to think that we've gotten past that. Yeah. But there's a number of people that really don't think that there's a lot of benefit to teenagers uh, being abstinent from substances, that this is something that, you know, they're just probably messing around with. Um, Do we really need specialized programs? Uh, those kinds of things. And it surprises me, quite frankly, when I hear people that still believe that and make those assertions. But I do. Uh, I, I do hear wow. people say uh, that we're, we're overdoing it with teenagers and we certainly don't need uh, programs that are publicly funded to service that. They just need better parents. Uh, the parents just need to uh, you know, have stronger skills and just deal with their kids. Uh, when you hear things like that, uh, yeah. you start to understand the types of barriers that you're really pushing against. Um, you don't even get to the practical problems. The, these are the big yeah. philosophical issues that don't allow you to get to the practical things like, well, how many teachers do we have to hire or you know, what curriculum should hmm. we be using? You, you can't even get to that question when you have the other things. But, I mean, when, when we show the research, and all, I mean, doesn't that change people's minds as far as how many kids are going to treatment now? And, and I'm sure you've seen current statistics that, you know, the average age of someone going to treatment, it used to be in their 30s and 40s, but now it's in their 20s. And that's the average, which means that there are more kids filling up the adolescent programs as well. So that's still that much of a misconception out there? I think it's the way people interpret data. And, and, you know, data, I think, is important. I'm a scholar. I, I certainly rely on research and data. Uh, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge part of academics, right? Um, yep. But on the other hand, I also know that people can interpret data in a lot of different ways. So if you see that, um, you know, it stays pretty constant, but say 7 to 9% of all young people um, – ages 12 to 17, uh, have, a, have a substance use problem to the level of a disorder or requiring treatment. So just under 10%, mm-hmm. right? Anywhere from about right. 7 to 10%. That seems like a lot of kids, and it is. It's an awful lot of kids. 
But you yes. can also turn that on its head. You, you can say, well, that means then like 90 to 93% don't need that. So if we're going to develop programs using public funding, why are we spending it on that particular small subset of kids? And so it's coming at it two different ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think people that work in the field and work with those young people that need this scratch their head at the people that don't see it yeah. as a major issue. Um, but I do think that's one way of looking at data. The other thing is that, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly what is the root cause of a substance use disorder. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there's more and more neuroscience that is helping us understand how drugs interact with the brain. Um, a lot more data that shows that the earlier someone becomes drug-involved, the more likely they are to develop a problem. Similarly, yep. the earlier they get help, the, the more likely they are uh, to stop that problem and, to, and to, mm-hmm. you know, to not develop a problem. And, you know, there, there are statistics that say that, and yet there's, there's still not a real solid foundation of, of literature that, that helps us understand the unique properties of adolescent substance use disorders and, and what tends to be the best ways to intervene. And so there's, mm. there tend to be debates in, in the uh, treatment community around which treatments are the best, which treatments are the most effective. Um, right. And while we're sitting there trying to figure that out, <laughs> we're not as willing to invest in programs that are actually out there. You know, out of fear Which, that somehow we're going to waste money. And, and that's where this yeah. argument and discussion often stalls out. Yeah, and, and we definitely need to turn that around because these kids are dying out there and, and they're messing up their lives when one brief intervention could make the difference between, you know, success in life and, and dying of heroin overdose at 19 years old. So, yeah, there's well, a lot of work to do. And you know what? We need to take a really quick break here, but we are going to be right back. I, I love the way this conversation is going, and, and I think this is really good information for our listeners out there. So we're going to continue the conversation right after this quick break, and we will be right back with Dr. Andy Finch right after these messages. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Randy Havison is a highly sought-after speaker, trainer, consultant, and author. His down-to-earth approach and mix of humor and insightful information make him a very effective presenter. With topics such as alcohol education, raising self-esteem, leadership development, and defining value systems, Havison has proven to be a pioneer in his field. Randy is a welcome speaker on the international stage with a personality that exudes raw energy fueled with magnetic charisma and the relatability of a best friend. His book, Party with a Plan, The Guide to Low-Risk Drinking, was 15 years in the making. He has found a research-based formula that teaches people how to drink and lower their risk for problems. Party with a Plan goes beyond be responsible and drink moderately by offering specific guidelines for people who want to drink and avoid the common problems associated with drinking. Visit Randy's websites, risespeaker.com and partywithaplan.com for more information. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. 
You are listening to Rise Radio. To reach Randy Havison or his guest today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Randy at riseradioshow.com. Now, back to Rise Radio. And welcome back to Rise Radio. I am your host, Randy Havison, and I am just thrilled that you're here uh, listening to the information that we're providing today because I think this is really, really important. If you're a parent, a grandparent, um, an aunt, an uncle, a niece or a nephew of someone who is experimenting with alcohol or other drugs and it might be getting a little out of hand, uh, you know, this is this is a good topic and a good segment for them to be listening to. And today we have Dr. Andy Finch from Vanderbilt University. has been working in the recovery field for a very long time, working with recovery high schools and recovery colleges. And before we get back into our conversation, um, you know, realize I realized that you know, some of the people out there listening might not really know what a recovery high school or a recovery collegiate program is. So, and I I tend to forget those things sometimes and and to kind of break it down for people who who aren't really familiar with the terms. So, Andy, could you kind of give a a brief definition of what exactly we're talking about when we talk about a recovery high school or a collegiate recovery program? Uh, certainly, because I, I think it's important for people to understand the differences uh, in in the different types of school programs that exist to, to help kids. And, and, and recovery high schools are schools that are designed for students in recovery from substance use and uh, co-occurring disorders. And they are schools that enroll kids who um, have identified uh, themselves as you know, wanting to, 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 to stop using substances. They, they've developed a problem. Uh, it may or may not have been formally diagnosed, uh, but they are in recovery. They are in a, in a stage of recovery uh, from a substance use uh, disorder that uh, the school uh, is set up to help them do that. And so these are very small schools. Uh, they have a variety of different formats that can be alternative schools. They might be charter schools. They can be independent schools, uh, schools within schools. Average enrollment's about 30. The largest of them is about 90 to 100 students. That's one in Houston, uh, Texas. Uh, Archway? They can be a small, yes, Archway Academy in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have uh, some that can be as small as maybe 10 students, 10 to 15 students. So they can be very small uh, they're really small in, in terms of traditional high schools, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and while students are there, they are getting uh, credits towards a high school diploma. Uh, they are uh, uh, recognized by their states and accreditation bodies. So these are you know, credits that have value. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're getting them across the, the, the subject areas that they need to receive a high school diploma. Uh, so they are taking there, math classes and English correct. classes and science classes. They're taking all of those, but yes. being in a, a safe environment of other students who are in recovery. Right, who can correct? support them, yeah. and they can do support groups. They can have counseling, these kinds of things. The difference from a treatment center or a school within a treatment center is that the primary purpose is to be a school, to give a person an education, and to support their recovery, but to not be primary treatment. In a primary treatment center, obviously treatment is what's the priority. But here, getting that education is why that school exists, but they build a supportive community around that student. 
And so as they start to wrestle with things, or maybe, uh, maybe they relapse, or maybe they're starting to think about using drugs again, then they have a supportive community uh, that can help really mitigate that. And, and say if they go out and relapse on a weekend, they can come back Monday morning, be held accountable by the group, uh, get some support, and maybe the next time they might call somebody before they go do that, or people will be aware of it. And so uh, that's essentially what a recovery high school is. Uh, there don't tend to be time limits. Someone can go in there uh, late in their high school career and, and graduate after being there for six months or a year. Other students have spent their entire four years of high school uh, in a recovery mm-hmm. high school. And so they don't tend to be time limited. Um, right. And a collegiate recovery program uh, is also for students in recovery, uh, except it's not the entire college. It's a program of support within a college. And, you know, there's, uh, depending on uh, who you ask, probably anywhere from, you know, 70 to 80 uh, active programs right now. Uh, it continues to grow. Um, and, uh, and they provide varieties of support from support groups. They provide things like uh, academic support, tutoring. Some of the colleges also provide housing uh, that's uh, recovery supportive housing, not just alcohol and drug-free dorms, but actual uh, housing for people who are sober and are providing support for each other. Um, And so there's a variety of different types of programs that they may provide. But again, it's a a group of students who have... um, who have substance use disorders that have come together uh, in a program on a college campus. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I found, because I've, I've visited a few recovery high schools and a lot of collegiate programs, the thing that really strikes me about these programs is how close-knit the communities are. I mean, these people, I mean, they're like families within these schools. Do you find that? I've been to a few. Do you find that that's pretty much the case? I think that community aspect, uh, to me, is the thing that makes the programs work. Uh, I think we can talk about a lot of different components of a school, from teaching pedagogy to what type of therapeutic programs are you utilizing, where have students gotten treatment. I think there's a lot of elements uh, that are certainly factors, but clearly the, the community that both the high schools and the colleges build that's based mm-hmm. on trust. It's based on uh, knowing other people, uh, people knowing you, um, people that can pick up on signs that something's not going well for you. It doesn't mean that mm-hmm. you're using drugs, but maybe you're struggling with something emotionally right now. And people can then huddle around you or, or provide you a, a, a caring ear. Uh, those are things that tend to be missing in a larger school atmosphere. Uh, just because it's it's uh, almost impossible to create uh, unless people are really around you all the time and really getting to know you really, really well, and that you're feeling very open uh, sharing things, sharing your fears, your doubts, your successes with a group of people. Uh, that's not That doesn't tend to be the culture that's fostered in our traditional high schools. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's not their, how they're designed, and certainly... In our, in our colleges and universities, um, that's not, that doesn't tend to be the culture that's fostered uh, because they're just so large. And you can definitely go to a college or university or a large traditional high school and just kind of blend in, uh, become mm-hmm. invisible, uh, separate and isolate. 
Um, the, these are they're not necessarily geared or designed uh, to support someone who's working through something like uh, addiction recovery. Right. But, you know, I, I always kind of look at it as the recovery programs on college campuses. It's almost like a fraternity or a sorority type of a feel to it. I mean, they're, you know, they're bonded to each other. They have this commonality and just they seem to excel. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you've t- done any research on this. I know in the college level, there's a high correlation between those who are in recovery. They tend to have higher GPAs than the, the general student that's out there. Uh, what about in the high schools? Are you finding the same thing is true that once they get into recovery and they embrace their recovery, that their GPAs are going up, uh, their, you know, a lot of aspects of their life are improving as a result of being in recovery? Is that true in the high schools too? It does seem to be the case. The studies that have been done, I, I, I will put out there that we're still in the midst of, of the more rigorous studies to, to really do rigorous comparison groups between students in recovery high schools to those who aren't in recovery high schools to give a better answer to that question. But if the schools that have collected that data and the studies that have been done academically, it does really seem that once the students have uh, gotten into that type of atmosphere, um, that their grades often do improve. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think something, though, that we have to understand is not every student who has gotten in trouble with alcohol and drugs has watched their grades drop. Um, interestingly, That's true. for some people who have developed a problem with alcohol and drugs, their grades have actually been very high. Uh, depending on the substance that they're using, it may or may not be impacting their academic performance. I think it certainly has... In, in a large number of students, but it, it doesn't always. And so um, GPA may not be the thing that, that is the biggest indicator. Um, right. But certainly well, for students who have been struggling or have, have had a hard time because of their alcohol and drug usage, when that's something that is not an issue anymore, you can really focus in and help them uh, remediate and, 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 and build those academic skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I you know, I I love to talk to students to say, you know, I used to have a 0.3 GPA and now I'm sober and I have a 3.8. I mean, it's so great when you hear that happen. In fact, one of the lines I used to use sometimes is that there was a point where my BAC was higher than my GPA. So <laughs> so it's it's always nice when people can turn that around and and make that happen. So Okay, back to one of the things that I want to touch on also is this going back to stigma and and what leads to this. And I think with adolescents, even more so than with, with young adults, a lot of times the parents have a really tough time coming to the grips with, my kid has a drug problem. I mean, they, they would duck and weave and, and not want to take responsibility. Um, do you find that that seems to be the case that a lot of parents don't want to acknowledge because they think, what are people going to think of me as a parent, of my kid as an addict or an alcoholic? Uh, do you think that has something to do with the stigma and why people don't come forward? Uh, yes, I, and I think it's multifaceted. I think that yeah. there are times where parents quite honestly don't realize that their child has an issue or they wouldn't even know what problem alcohol and drug usage looks like. Uh, they may think mm. that their, their kids are just being kids, they're just messing around, uh, and they wouldn't know when it had crossed the line. 
and become an issue. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes parents um, are active in, in using themselves and to turn the, the spotlight onto their family. Granted, it might be about their child, but there's always a little bit of fear of well, if they start really looking into my kid, are they also going to perhaps start looking at me? And so mm-hmm. there can be a real That's hesitancy true. to turn that light onto a family, um, especially if that the family is active in its use and it's not just the child. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a number of different family uh, theories and family dynamic theories that do seem to play out um, and secrets that get kept or things that don't get talked about. And so therefore people don't get help. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I think it's stigma, but I also think it gets into just basic family dynamics that we certainly see uh, play out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I remember when I was working at a treatment center and I was talking to the family and said, you know, while your son is here, we would like for the family to make a commitment to be alcohol and drug free too. And the mother said, you're telling me I can't have my glass of wine in the evening? And I said, well, you know, maybe if that glass of wine is that important, maybe it would be a good idea to take a break for a month. And the next day she pulled her kid out of treatment. And it was just so frustrating watching the the parent make that decision for their kid. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that happens all the time. And parents need to be aware of how their behavior is affecting their kids. Yeah, family involvement has always been a, a very difficult thing uh, for the school's to, to create. Um, most of the schools would say they want an active family component, that they feel like this is something that the family has to work through. And yet, mm-hmm. as soon as you start to require a family to get involved, what are you going to do if, if the, the family or the parents decide not to be involved? About all you mm-hmm. have left is to punish the kid for the family right. not wanting to be involved. And so the schools really walk a fine line in how to involve families and at what point um, are you starting to take it out on, on the child for the, what the family doesn't want to participate in. You know, the mm-hmm. positive side of that, though, is that there have often been times where families and parents have realized that they also do have an issue, um, that, yep. that their own behaviors uh, are contributing to this, their own uh, beliefs or their own things that they're doing, the own things that they're saying, and even some parents who have discovered they have their own substance use disorder that they need to get taken care of. And so that's kind of yep. the positive side of this, that once the family really does become involved, it can become a healthier unit, and it can mm-hmm. also maybe help parents address issues that they have in their own lives. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, we need to take one more quick break. And when we come back, one of the things I really want to talk about, there are a couple things I want to talk to you about. One of them is to maybe go through some tips that uh, parents can utilize that might lower the risk of their kid turning to alcohol or drugs. Uh, I want to talk about some of the myths that are out there. You know, I, I hear a lot of parents say, well, you know, I let my kid drink in the house because I'd rather have him do it here than out at his friend's house. And and I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I would love to get your opinion on this whole legalization of marijuana for recreational use and what you see that doing to adolescents and and uh, yeah, to, to high school students. So after this quick break, we're going to come back with Andy Finch, get some questions answered, and give you out there some tips and some hints on what you can do to help your kids and your loved ones. So we will be right back after these messages. 
your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Randy Havison is a highly sought-after speaker, trainer, consultant, and author. His down-to-earth approach and mix of humor and insightful information make him a very effective presenter. With topics such as alcohol education, raising self-esteem, leadership development, and defining value systems, Havison has proven to be a pioneer in his field. Randy is a welcome speaker on the international stage with a personality that exudes raw energy fueled with magnetic charisma and the relatability of a best friend. His book, Party with a Plan, The Guide to Low-Risk Drinking, was 15 years in the making. He has found a research-based formula that teaches people how to drink and lower their risk for problems. Party with a Plan goes beyond be responsible and drink moderately by offering specific guidelines for people who want to drink and avoid the common problems associated with drinking. Visit Randy's websites, risespeaker.com and partywithaplan.com for more information. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Rise Radio. To reach Randy Havison or his guest today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Randy at riseradioshow.com. Now, back to Rise Radio. And welcome back once again to Rise Radio. I am your host, Randy Havison. And today we are talking about recovery high schools, collegiate recovery communities. And we have on the line with us Dr. Andy Finch, who I have been a fan of for a very long time. This man, I mean, not only is he an expert in this field and has done so much to help the movement of recovery high schools, He's just a really nice guy, too. And if you ever have an opportunity, which most of you won't, but if you ever did, I mean, he's just such a nice guy and good guy to be around, just great energy. So, Andy, I'm just so glad that we connected and was able to have you here on the show. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. This I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Thank you. Yeah, cool. So let's talk about... Uh, some of the tips, because, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about this, too, and I, you know, it's invariably, I'll be on an airplane or sitting somewhere, and people are like, oh, you're in the addiction, you know, how do I reduce the risk of my kid turning to drugs? And, you know, I have my list, but I'd love to hear from you, um, what are some things that you tell parents, or what are some of the tips for our listeners to help maybe break the pattern, what to do if they're kind of suspecting something might be going on, or just to avoid it altogether. What are tips that you give? Well, it's been really interesting in, in uh, people who've been looking at prevention programs and the programs that, that tend to work the best. Uh, parents just talking to their kids and opening that conversation seems to be one of the most effective things that can happen. Uh, parents just, just from a... From, an early age, uh, having conversations about, you know, what what are drugs and what are the impacts that drugs have and uh, what what would responsible drinking look like? And so, you know, when parents are drinking, uh, what types of behaviors are they modeling for their kids? And so the actions mm-hmm. that parents take when kids are watching, but also just opening that conversation. Um, and, and this doesn't have to be something where it's a lecture, obviously, but just you know, bringing it up now and again at, at opportune times. If it's on television and people are, 
are using drugs or if uh, a, a child sees someone doing something uh, or if it's just something that seems to come naturally. But having those conversations, and again, it's not something that you'd want to sit down and then quiz your child about later, but by having those conversations, the child knows that when they do encounter an issue as they get older, they're put into a situation that they don't know how to handle they'll feel more comfortable then coming to their parents because they've had those conversations with their parents already. And, and so they've had an environment in which it's been encouraged. And so they may be more likely to talk to their parents about it. And so I think having the conversations, which of course means that parents themselves should become informed about uh, alcohol, drugs, the impacts of substances, have some some factual information that they have an awareness of. Part of being a parent is learning about this and is and, and mm-hmm. understanding it and and knowing uh, you know what the potential hazards uh, could be and being a, a resource uh, for kids when issues come up. And so I think that's really one of the best things that parents can do uh, for their children. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it's multiple conversations. It's not a one-time thing. And you're right. It's like if they see an image on TV or commercials, you know, I mean, how many beer commercials do you have to go through when you're watching a football game? So it's having those conversations and 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 multiple. And also, I think, realizing that the drug culture and the alcohol culture has changed. So maybe what the parents knew when they were in high school or college, it's a completely different world now. So do you think educating about that and having parents educate themselves about what the current trends are is helpful? Certainly. I, I think parents need to know, you know, the kinds of things that kids are getting involved in and the ways they're getting uh, involved in things. I, I think parents need to have an awareness who their children's friends are, uh, mm-hmm. who they're hanging out with. Um, and, and the more that you know who your kids are hanging out with, the more awareness you may have if, if your child's starting to get involved in things that, uh, that may be dangerous or risky as far as alcohol and drug use. Uh, I mm-hmm. think the other part of that is it's important for people to know their family histories. Uh, I, I'm really surprised at the number of people that just don't have an awareness of how this has impacted their families generationally or how uncomfortable mm-hmm. they are to share with their children that this is something that perhaps uh, their parents did or, or uh, a grandparents had an issue with this. Because we do know that it, it seems there's a genetic piece that, that plays a role in someone who develops a substance use disorder. We don't know exactly what that is. As with anything genetic, it tends to take something in the environment to trigger that. But on the other hand, if this is something that has run through a person's family generation by generation, that's something that it would be helpful for uh, a young person to know, uh, that when they start to make some of these choices, that there might be a chance that they're more likely to develop a problem with this than somebody else. And, right. and that may explain why they develop a problem more quickly. And unfortunately, they may not know that until they become drug-involved. And, and so mm-hmm. these are things that it's good for families uh, to share about. And, and yeah, so absolutely. Know. And, uh, you know, a, an analogy that I draw, it's like, you know, if you have a strong family history of breast cancer or lung cancer, then there are measures that you can take to prevent you from having that disease 
take take over your life. So it, I think it's the same with addiction, that if you're aware of the family history of that, then you have a better chance to prepare yourself to avoid problems. Certainly, certainly. And I think there's certain real concrete things a family can do as far as making it less likely that a child is going to use drugs in their own home. I, I think you know, prescription drugs, uh, you know, things that people might actually use for intoxicating purposes, you know, just having those out and available uh, is really asking for a problem. And it, it may not be your mm-hmm. own child that accesses those, but perhaps their friends do when they come yeah. over. So as, as children grow to an age where that might become an issue, you know, keeping those kind of out of sight or put away and not just out there uh, easily defined for anybody that walks into your house. You know, thinking about mm-hmm. how often you're drinking to excess in front of your kids, uh, to yep. the extent that the parents are drug users, are they having their kids around when they're doing that? Um, these are all things. Or hosting parties, perhaps, uh, thinking that that's a safer way. Thinking about the messages that are being sent if you're doing that, that these are things that we encourage or want you to do um, you know, kids pick up on these messages, and especially if there's a propensity for them to develop a problem, that's just fanning the flames. And so there's some mm-hmm. real concrete, practical things that parents can avoid or take care about, again, that might, uh, might reduce the chance that the drugs uh, and alcohol are going to be accessed in their own home. Yeah, and, and, you know, what is your thought? Because I have parents say to me, you know, I'd rather have my kid do it in my house with me watching rather than be out there. So, yeah, I'll have kids come over and, and drink here, but as long as they just do it here, then it's okay. What What's your suggestion there? Boy, you know, I, I think you, pe- people have to be really careful when they're starting to think about, are we going to host uh, illegal behavior in our home? You know, it's mm-hmm. it's still... You know, drinking for kids who are under 21 uh, is illegal. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, having drugs in your home uh, is going to be illegal. Uh, So for parents to say, well, it's safer to be in my house than somewhere else, they may think it is, but they're also promoting to their children, it's okay to do illegal acts. As a matter of fact, I'll actually do that for you. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's sending a message that I think parents need to think twice uh, about doing, uh, and and it, it certainly is something that is is probably more likely to create problems and a lot of problems than it is to resolve them. Especially if the police show up at this party that you're hosting, uh, and now perhaps you've got charges against you for hosting a party with alcohol with minors involved. And yeah, because isn't that, that contributing to the delinquency of minors? Isn't that what they would call it? Sure, and, and, and I think as soon as you are doing that, you know, purchasing alcohol or making alcohol available to someone who's underage, now their own parents might be in the media. Um, mm-hmm. but people need to think all of that through. And, and, and also there's a, a false illusion that if it's happening under my uh, roof that I somehow have control of it. And that's certainly not true. Um, you know, teenagers are, are very good at, at doing what they want to do, whether it's on the, under their own roof or somebody else's roof. And, and I think inviting a bunch of people into your home uh, to drink and potentially use drugs is just asking for all kinds of liability um, to be associated. So it's certainly not something that, that I would encourage. And, and it, it does seem to me that it the potential for problems that it creates are just layer upon layer of issue. 
Oh, absolutely. And you know, you you touched on this earlier, knowing who your kids' friends are. But do you suggest also? I mean, I suggest to pe- this to people: know who the parents are of your kids' sure. friends, so that you can. Oh do yeah, a text, part of knowing know? who your friends are is knowing who their families are. I mean, it's not just yes. knowing their names, but uh, knowing something about them. Uh, even if if this is someone that you know your child is hanging out with, reach out to the parents um, mm-hmm. and uh, introduce yourself to them and. Um, you know, try to understand, you know, who the people are, because you're right, when you're hanging out with a friend and a teenager, there's a good chance you might end up hanging out at their house or, mm-hmm. or being around that family, either intentionally or unintentionally. And so, sure, the more that you can know about who your child's friends are and who their families are, uh, the more awareness you could have that, you know, are alcohol or drugs going to be something that might potentially be an issue here? Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, one of my notorious tricks used to be, I would say, hey, mom, I'm going to go spend the night at John's house. And John would say, hey, mom, I'm going to go spend the night at Randy's house. And then we'd just be off and running. So this was before cell phones and a quick text would be just one way to kind of disarm that tactic to, you know, if my mom would have been able to text John's mom and, and I wish she would have called her, hey, so Randy's spending the night over there? What? No, I thought John was spending the night over there. So, you know, I think for parents to be more aware, they can cut down on some of those issues that might take place. So what well, about and the reality the is that yeah. they can't control everything either, Randy. Uh, yeah, and right. I think that parents, all, after all their best efforts, uh, kids are going to get involved with things that they aren't going to be able to stop and they aren't going to be able to control. And so if they've created an atmosphere where, they can help a child in a trusting way when they realize a problem is there, then that's probably mm-hmm. the best thing that they can do. Build a trusting relationship with a child and, and, and have the courage to step in if you think that a problem is starting to occur. Yeah, okay, but how, what are some of the tips you give on if they suspect something's going on, how do they step in? What are some ways the parents can do that? Well, certainly having the conversation with the child or if you really, mm-hmm. if they're not, being forthright, being able to point out a discrepancy, uh, like I found drugs in your bedroom, or uh, like you just said, I thought you were going here, but I found out you weren't going here. And so if you can actually figure it out that there might be something going on, uh, then knowing who that you might be able to refer your child to talk to. So maybe it's the counselor at the school. Maybe there's a student assistance professional at the school. Maybe it's your pediatrician. Sometimes it won't be the parent. You know, sometimes the child's just not going to feel comfortable talking about their developing alcohol and drug issue with their parent, and that's okay. True. But if yep. there's a trusted person that, uh, that the child could talk to that might be able to help them go to that next step, then know who those people are so that if the problem mm-hmm. comes up, you can suggest that they talk to your child, and then they can determine how much of a problem. Maybe it needs treatment. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just needs uh, a conversation about the realities, a little bit of motivational interviewing, so to speak, um, so that they don't get themselves into that same situation again. Uh, But knowing who those resources are in case something does happen, I think is important for parents to identify before it happens. And that's going to vary depending on your community, um, you know, your school, those kinds of things. 
Right. But again, I think what I'm hearing you say is prepare and know what those resources are before you get into that situation. Because if you're scrambling, you know, when it's already going on, it's a lot harder to find those good quality resources. Well, as they say in the recovery community, this is an equal opportunity issue, and it's going to strike <laughs> everyone. And I think mm-hmm. parents do not do themselves any service by being naive and saying, oh, that's not likely to happen to my kid. Or if it does, right. they'd probably tell me. Because, you know, there's a good chance they won't, and there's mm-hmm. a good chance it will happen to your child, no matter who you are. So you might as well be prepared for it. And the worst thing that could happen would be prepared for it, and it doesn't happen, and so be it. Um, yeah, or it might be, ready, be a friend of happen. your kid, and now you're prepared to go help that person. You know, your kid comes to say, hey, I'm really concerned about Sue. She seems to be going off the deep end, and now maybe you could be a resource for Sue. So it's just good to prepare. Yeah, and I find that the materials on Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, if you look at their website, they have really good tools, nice handbooks that parents can read up on. This isn't a lot of deep-level studying. It's just some real basic things that they could do. I would direct people to that website uh, and other resources like that so that they can be prepared. Yes, absolutely, and that is the key. Uh, you know, and one of the things I say also, it's not about just say no, it's about how are you going to say no when that situation comes up. And that's one of the conversations that parents can have with the kids and, and you know, help reduce that risk. Because that's the whole thing. You know, my thing is, you know, I used to work in the treatment field and I loved working in treatment, but I really enjoy being now on the prevention side and and helping these kids from not crossing the line to begin with. And a lot of that is educating parents, too. And the earlier that parents can identify that something might be happening, uh, the better chance they can can intervene and and help the child before it becomes a real problem. You know, kids Mm -hmm. are just going to mess around with things. They're going to try things out. It's part of growing up. Uh, but before they get in over their head, um, it would be good for parents to have identified and, and maybe have a conversation or have somebody trusted who can have that conversation with your child uh, before it becomes a problem. Yeah. Absolutely. And Andy, I was just notified that we're about out of time. Um, and I could continue this for a long, long time. I think this is some really good information for parents, and I can't thank you enough for being here today. And if people want more information, they can go to riseradioshow.com. So thank you for tuning in this week to Rise Radio, and we will see you or hear you next week with another guest on Rise Radio. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Rise Radio. Please join your host, Randy Havison, again next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until our next show, have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 